Good evening and welcome. It's Easter Sunday and we're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. 110 years ago this month, the Titanic hit an iceberg and sank while on the way to New York City, resulting in a terrible loss of life. And in tonight's show, we're going to explore the stories of those on board and find out how the Titanic became the most famous and iconic ship in history. Last week, we looked at the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass, the greatest African-American of the 19th century, and we found out how he became one of the most influential figures in the campaign against slavery. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on the Titanic. Built at the Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast, the Titanic set sail from Southampton on the 10th of April, 1912. Four days later, it hit an iceberg a few hundred miles off the coast of Newfoundland. It is estimated that more than 1,500 people perished, and the scale of the tragedy captured the imagination of the world. In tonight's show, we want to explore the events of 110 years ago, find out what happened and also about the people on board and find out as well why it has exerted such a hold on the popular imagination. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Nicola Pierce is a writer living in Drogheda and is the author of Titanic, True Stories of Her Passengers, Crew and Legacy, published by the O'Brien Press, and also Spirit of the Titanic, a captivating ghost story for younger readers. Gareth Russell is an historian, novelist and playwright and is the author of The Ship of Dreams, a book which uses the sinking of the Titanic as a prism through which to examine the end of the Edwardian era. Well, you're both very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Julie Cook, a writer and journalist and the author of The Titanic and the City of Widows It Left Behind, published by Pen and Sword. And Julie's great grandfather died on the Titanic. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And Nicola, I might begin with you and a question about why do you think the story of the Titanic and the tragedy of the Titanic continues to fascinate people all around the world and that there have been so many books about it, so many fiction and non-fiction accounts, movies, programmes on television, that 110 years on, it still excites the imagination. Yeah, it's uh, just a question that I've spent the last 10, 11 years kind of thinking. My children's novel came out in 2011 and it was my first children's novel and suddenly I'm launched into going around talking about it. I'd never done public speaking before and I was absolutely struck by, you know, I met four-year-olds absolutely obsessed about the Titanic. I had elderly folk turning up to show me their research when I would give talks in libraries. Uh, I think from the very moment it happened, it was already a huge story. The Carpathia pulls into New York, the captain of the Carpathia, so this was the ship that uh, went and rescued those in the lifeboats, was the first ship to get on the scene. And he actually was confronted with a newspaper man, a journalist, who had managed to sneak on board his ship and is already rubbing his hands in glee and saying, oh boy, what a story, oh my God, what a brilliant story. So I think it was to do with the fact that we had this most beautiful, most expensive ship. She's only a few days into her first voyage. And it's just an absolute, and nobody really could believe that this had happened. They'd watched the ship in newsreels. Everybody knew about the Titanic. And now to hear that she's actually at the bottom of the ocean. And that all these very famous, some of the wealthiest men in the world are with her, uh, now dead. That I think that was just, um, it's just so dramatic as a story. Like some of the people that died, John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim. I mean, it was just incredible at the time and it still uh, captivates us today. 
Gareth, there's also that part of the story about how it was viewed as an unsinkable ship. The the boat that's attributed sometimes to the captain, sometimes to a crew member that even God couldn't sink the Titanic and the size of the ship as well. That I think that added to the a, an extra layer to the story of the tragedy as well. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, it's sort of a notorious quote um, in the in the years after, actually probably within days after, uh, its owners, the White Star Line, were very insistent that the brochures had said practically unsinkable. And I think there was certainly, uh, you know, there was an understanding that a terrible tidal wave or a fire could still take out a ship. But in many ways, the advice given to passengers traveling on ships that big by 1912 were a little like the advice given to people who are very afraid of flying today, which is, do you know the chances are so infinitesimal that you're not going to be in much difficulty? But Captain Smith did joke on, well, hope he was joking because it would have been a very, very stupid comment to make otherwise. But there were passengers who overheard uh, the ship's captain say the day before the sinking, if this ship was cut in three, all three parts, would uh, stay afloat separately. So there certainly was bombast, and in hindsight, that quote and that idea of hubris and technological arrogance helped become a great metaphor for people who wanted to say there is a moral lesson that we can learn from the Titanic, which is that if you throw yourself against God or nature, they're going to win and humanity will lose. And Gareth, just a very simple point. How come they just didn't have enough lifeboats on board? Because whatever about thinking that the the, the, the ship was practically unsinkable and that even if it split in three, uh, the areas would be safe, just the White Star Line t- didn't have a shortage of money and you would have thought as a basic precaution you would have had enough enough lifeboats on it. Sure. I mean, I think the fact... The, the lifeboats is such an interesting point because actually there's a... There's an argument to be made that even if they had had enough lifeboats, it wouldn't have made much difference to the death toll because they were still trying to fill some of them when the ship entered its, its final plunge. So there mightn't have been enough time to use them all. I came across a few quotes from officers in the Royal Navy who said stacking lifeboats is equally dangerous and that, in fact, in most cases, there won't be time to fill them all. But ultimately and I'm not diminishing the expertise of people who served in the Navy. They know more than I do. Uh, But I think it came down ultimately to cosmetic reasons. Lifeboats were considered a bit of a hazard on deck. And the general consensus was if a ship as large as the Titanic gets into trouble, she will be able to stay afloat for so long that rescue ships will get to her and there'll be no need for us to clutter the deck with too many lifeboats. So it was a mixture of understandable um, seagoing sort of protocol. But ultimately, I do think White Star Line rejected proposals to put more lifeboats on because they thought it would clutter the first and second class promenade um, spaces. And also it would make it look like they didn't have faith in their ship's uh, sort of safety technology. Nicola, of course, in Ireland, we love the the Irish connections as well. And there's a wonderful Titanic experience in Cove, where the ships visited and where passengers came on board. And of course, you have the wonderful Titanic Quarter in Belfast, and you can visit 
uh, that wonderful exhibition there as well and it's had huge numbers going to see it uh, since it opened 10 yeah. years ago and I think there's a certain element of pride and a certain Irish interest in the in the fact that it was built uh, in Belfast even though of course then uh, it, 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 it sank on its maiden voyage. Yeah, I think there's, well, there's sort of a joke up in Belfast. She was all right when she left us. But yeah, there, I mean, there, we, it is an extraordinary part, I think, of Irish history. Um, you know, even like one thing that surprised me when I was researching my book was that Lady Gregory was uh, felt that she was in love with uh, John Quinn, who lived in New York. And they'd had a very passionate relationship. Now she was 60 by this stage. And she comes back to Ireland and is sending him love letters. And he's decided that she's not the one for him after all. I think he was a bit of a playboy, very wealthy man. He knew people like James Joyce and Ezra Pound and he was collecting art and whatever. So she sent him uh, a ring and it turned out it was on the Titanic. Uh, and John Quinn wrote to Augustus John, the painter, and said, I think it's probably the best place for it because uh, he had completely changed his mind about the relationship. So, I mean, there's a hundred different kind of Irish connections um, with the ship. And I absolutely, anyone listening, you know, Cove and Belfast, it's two fantastic places for anyone who uh, wants to see, uh, you know, I mean, it's very moving standing in Cove and looking at the last place that Titanic was docked. Even though you can't see her, you can put her there. You've seen the photographs of her. And same with Belfast. You know, when they built the Titanic Museum, I was going around schools all over the place and being continually asked, have you been to the new museum yet? And I was just delaying because I couldn't understand how they got such a massive building uh, out of such a short story. She's only in the water for a few days. And it was uh, an absolute joy when I finally had myself rock up to the museum and went in and it's just done so well and I was moved over and over again um, and it kind of added them to my passion. So we're very lucky that we have these museums and, you know, I'd love to visit a few museums in America. Oh, I'd love to visit their building, the Titanic, um, as part of, I don't know if it's a fun park, but in China, they're kind of building a Titanic from scratch. It should nearly be done, I would imagine, and I'd love to see that. But even though, you know, it is strange to go to a museum and we don't have what the story is about, Titanic is at the bottom of the ocean, but I still think they've done an incredible job. Gareth, there seems to be an issue with the numbers on board and then uh, difficult to work out the numbers who perished because I think some people bought tickets but then didn't board and they're not entirely certain, I think, uh, who, who, who decided to make it in the end. Yeah, there was a, a joke I was told when I was writing uh, the book and they said, you know, in, it's a bit like 1916 in Dublin. Everyone has a relative who was going to post a letter at Easter 1916 in Dublin, and everyone in Belfast has a relative who was going to sail on the Titanic and then lost his ticket. There's sort of these two, you know, there's always um, uh, the numbers of people who told me they had relatives that were due to sail on the Titanic far exceed its actual capacity. Uh, and that's a sort of a testament and tribute to the myth, the power of the myth. But there certainly were people who did genuinely cancel. Part of it was that there was a industrial action of British coal miners in the weeks leading up to the Titanic's voyage. And a lot of ocean liners, smaller ocean liners, had to cancel their voyage. I mean, it, it's almost difficult for us now to imagine just how dependent industry and the economy was on coal. The, I mean, the equivalent, obviously, would be oil today. And so a lot of passengers from the smaller ships had their bookings transferred over to the Titanic 
and a few of them didn't want to go on bigger ships. There was there were some passengers who didn't trust these these sort of supersized ships. There were passengers who missed the connections. There were some, in fact, uh, the very very wealthy American financier J.P. Morgan was considering sailing on it, but he got sick and during in his holiday in Italy. So there were a variety of reasons um, why people didn't make it, but it also was not sailing anywhere near capacity. Spring sailings were generally a little less popular than the summer ones. That's just always true in um, the tourist industry even then. And so you had about one third of first class cabins booked and half of second class and about three quarters of third. So it wasn't... um, it wasn't a fully booked passage, which I think a lot of people find quite surprising. Nicola, you've looked at a lot of the personalities uh, on board, the passengers yeah. and the crew, and some some really fascinating stories there. And maybe talk to us about some of the different types of people on board, because you had people on honeymoon, you had clergymen, uh, and then you had, as you say, all of these different, like there was a, a, a an actress, there was uh, the business people. Like, it yeah. really was a very diverse crew and group of people on board. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dorothy Gibson is the actress that you mentioned and she actually ends up in a film about the Titanic just weeks after the sinking and she wears the same clothes that she wore that day and got uh, was very emotional during the making of the film, as you can imagine. And unfortunately, that film has been lost. Uh, it would be wonderful to see it. But again, it shows you how fast the story gripped uh, the imagination um, of uh, of Hollywood. So there was 21 newly married uh, couples on board and, you know, the following morning, 15th, the morning of the 15th of April, 1912, 20 of those brides were widows. So then the story becomes about who stayed with their husbands, who left their husbands, who saved themselves with their husbands. So probably the most controversial couple is Sir Cosmo and Lady Lucy Duff Gordon. So they survived the Titanic and they ended up in a lifeboat together. So there was the whole thing about whether Captain Smith meant women and children first into the lifeboats or just save women and children. But they end up together in lifeboat one. And they're the only passengers that were interviewed during the American and the British hearings that took place after the sinking to find out how what happened. So Sir Cosmo said that they were at lifeboat one. And he asked the first officer there, or the uh, William Murdoch, you know, is it OK if I get in with my wife? And he says that Murdoch, who did not survive, he says that Murdoch says, oh, yes, certainly, I'd be delighted. So he ends up in this lifeboat, which was a very controversial lifeboat. Um, It should have held 40 people. Garrett has made that point. It took a while for people to understand what was happening and to trust the lifeboats. So this lifeboat leaves the Titanic with just 12 people on board, five passengers and seven crew now, there's a couple of um, points about this lifeboat. Lady Lucy uh, Duff Gordon, who seems like a fantastic woman and had her own company. It was a businesswoman. Um, she's meant to have been the first person to come up with training professional models. She thinks that the catwalk, she said she invented the notion of the catwalk. So she's a very successful businesswoman. But apparently it was said that when the Titanic sank, she just said, oh, there goes my beautiful nightdress. Or she may have said to her secretary who was beside her, oh, there goes your beautiful nightdress. So that sounds really callous to our ears today. But I suppose we have to consider that they would have been in shock. They might not have understood that there were still people on that ship when she was sinking. Now, the other part of the story is that 
uh, one of the firemen, one of the staff in the uh, lifeboat said to her, how, how dare you say that? Aren't you lucky to escape with your life? And then about 30 minutes later, he says to this wealthy couple, have you lost everything? And they said, yes, we have. And he goes, oh, yeah, but you can replace it. We've lost all our kits. So he's pointing to himself and uh, his fellow firemen. So Lord Duff, um, Lord Sir Cosmo Duff, is then meant to have said, well, I'll, I'll give you all a fiver towards your new kit. And that becomes a bonus contention because then the biggest thing about this lifeboat is they had loads of space and they did not turn back to try and save anybody out of the waters. And then that all gets very vague and cloudy when they're asked why. Um, Lady Lucy Duff Gordon was said to have been very seasick, but the sea was like glass. So her husband said, I didn't really notice anyone crying for help because I was taking care of my wife. Um, and then the firemen said that, oh, we did. One of us did say, let's turn back. But it was the Duff Gordons who told us not to. You know, we'd all end up in the bottom of the ocean because everyone would be trying to get on board. So that's probably one of the most um, controversial stories to do with the Titanic. And then, you know, when you're talking about stories like this, you end up um, thinking, well, what would I have done if I was there? So then we have the couple, Ida and Isidore Strauss. So this was a very wealthy couple traveling in first class. He owned Macy's Step Department Store in New York. He was also a congressman. And they tried to get Ida to leave. Their friends were gathered around her and said, um, Captain has said women and children into lifeboats, but she refuses to leave her husband. She walks back to him and says, you and I have been together for over 60 years. Where you go, I go. And they walked off together, hand in hand, and only his body was found afterwards. And that became a huge, huge romantic story after the sinking. She was nearly lauded as the saintly wife who refused to leave her husband and they both refused to be saved. Um, and then there was eight clergymen on board. We have three Catholic priests and we have five Protestant reverends and not one of them attempted to get into a lifeboat. They were offered places, they turned them down. Some of the reverends had their wives with them, they weren't saved either. So it is this, this wonderful story of heroics. I mean, one of the priests, Father Biles, they're trying to canonise him today Pope Pius X back in 1912 called him a martyr for the church because it's Father Biles that when the ship is actually sinking, they're kneeling in ocean water and he's giving, um, he's hearing confessions and he's uh, leading them in the Our Father uh, for everyone of any religion. And people kind of heard his voice getting into lifeboats as they were sailing away. They heard him say the Our Father. Um, so these stories are just fantastic. Over 110 years later, they still fascinate us today. And Nicola, do you think an element of it is that there are these heroes and villains, you know, someone like Sir Cosmo, who, yeah. you know, is denounced as a coward in the press afterwards and it haunts him for the rest of his life yeah. and the marriage yeah. breaks up soon afterwards. That, But then you have heroes like uh, uh, the woman who becomes known as the unsinkable Molly Brown and who's trying to, to rescue other passengers that that it, it, because because there does seem to be clear heroes and villains and that there are these controversies and there's also tales of heroism and, and sacrifice that, yeah. that that contributes to the to the legend and to the story of it as well. Well, definitely. I mean, apart from anything else, we have the managing director of White Star Line, Bruce Ismay, and he ends up being saved. But, I mean, the man had five children and he had spent the previous hour helping passengers and uh, into lifeboats. In fact, some of the crew, the females, weren't going to save themselves because they weren't sure if they could or not. Uh, one of them was a stewardess. She says, I don't know if I can get into a boat. And he told her, you're all women now. Get in. Save yourselves. And then when the opportunity arises, and he would have had just a moment to react. 
the officer in charge of loading the lifeboat calls. Nobody, you know, they said there was no women, no more women and children. They were looking for women and children, no more around. So Bruce Ismay jumps in and saves himself and again ends up um, uh, probably suffering for the rest of his life over this. Uh, he was there as managing director. He got grilled during the hearings, as you can imagine. And he tried to say, first of all, like, you know, I was just an ordinary passenger. And then he was asked, well, did you pay for your tickets? You were not an ordinary passenger. And Walter Lord, who writes, you know, one of the best books on the Titanic, A Night to Remember, he refers to Bruce Ismay uh, as a super captain because there's this whole issue of whether Bruce Ismay put pressure on Captain Smith to get Titanic going at her full speed in spite of being in 35 miles of icebergs. Um, and that's something we'll never, ever know. So again, that's probably part of the fascination too. All these stories have open ends. We will never, ever know because the people did not survive. And Bruce Ismay is a fascinating one because he appears in all of the the movie versions, yeah. including the James Cameron one and and the TV programs. Derek Mann's After the Titanic poem, I think, is is yeah. is is, is, is in, certainly in part inspired by his story. And and uh, he's someone who definitely, in terms of uh, posthumous reputation, has a very bad rap. And uh, he's gone down in history as one of the villains of the story. Yeah, but, you know, I can't help but put myself in his feet. If you're standing out, you feel you've done all you can do. You've helped hundreds into lifeboats. You have saved people's lives. And now you're standing looking at a lifeboat. The officer has called for more women and children. Nobody's answered the call. The boat starts to go down. He just jumps. He didn't think about it, you know. And I have to think he did have five children and his wife waiting for him at home. Um, But he was um, in a conversation with one of the passengers before the ship hit the iceberg, Mrs. Ryerson. She said he had this telegram that Captain Smith had given him, warning him about icebergs. And he said, to, you know, Mrs. Ryerson assumed then the ship would be slowed down. He told her, oh, no, 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 I'm going to make sure more of the more of the boilers are lit. We're going to up the speed. So all of this stuff came out afterwards. And certainly a couple of the passengers absolutely blamed him. Now, he was cleared kind of mostly of the blame. Um, but it was felt, uh, you know, as, as far as they could say, they felt that maybe just the fact he was on board put pressure on Captain Smith. Even if he didn't actually tell Captain Smith, go faster, Captain Smith may have felt that he should just because he had the managing director of White Star Line on board. You know, so I mean, this is a story that just goes on and on and on. Very good. Well, it is a special Easter Sunday edition of Talking History as we remember the events of 110 years ago when the Titanic made that fateful and fated voyage uh, and never made it. And we will be taking a quick break now. But when we come back, I'll be talking to Julie Cook about uh, what it was like for the crew on board the Titanic and also her great grandfather's experience. And he was uh, one of the people who lost their life on the Titanic. And that'll be all coming after this break. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we remember the events of 110 years ago when the Titanic sank on its maiden voyage. I'm delighted to be joined by Julie Cook, a writer and journalist who's the author of The Titanic and the City of Widows It Left Behind, published by Pen and Sword. And Julie's great-grandfather died on the Titanic. Julie, let's maybe talk about that family connection. And does it, does it mean you approached the whole writing about the Titanic differently, knowing that an ancestor of yours perished on it. Yes, uh, very much so, I think, because um, when I was sort of growing up and reading books about the Titanic or watching films about the Titanic, I always felt it was very much a sort of rich person's tragedy. So all I ever saw was sort of the really famous names, Molly Brown and um, Guggenheim and all these incredibly rich and wealthy famous names. 
but I never felt there was any reference really to the poorer people, particularly the crew who worked on board. Uh, so with my great-grandfather being a stoker on board, um, one of the lowest forms of crew member, one could argue, um, I really felt that they were missing in the whole Titanic story. So yes, that's where I approached it from. Talk to me about your great-grandfather. Talk to me about maybe using his story as a way of of exploring what life was like for the stokers, how they were treated, and maybe what it was like working on the ship. Yes, of course. So my great-grandfather, he was 40 when he uh, set sail on Titanic. He'd actually been a stoker on other uh, ships of the day, one called the Oceanic, and he'd done sort of uh, coal transportation ship work. So as a stoker, he'd done that for many years. Uh, Stokers themselves had a very, very tough life. They had to be incredibly hardy. The work was really not easy. Um, For example, on Titanic, uh, as an example, they worked four hours on, eight hours off. But those four hours would have been back-breaking, non-stop, literally sort of picking up coal on a shovel, heaving it into the furnace, and then doing it again in 50-degree centigrade heat. Um, They had to take salt tablets because they lost so much fluid and, and body salt from the work they did. Um, when they came off the ship, uh, when I was researching, I was looking at sort of oral histories of the time and found that people who used to see the stokers coming off the ships when they'd done a, a, a journey somewhere, they'd call them um, skeletons coming off the killer ships because they were so thin, malnourished, lacking, you know, really dehydrated when they came off. Uh, so it was incredibly hard work. And as a result, they had to be hard people. So you had to be tough physically, mentally and in every way really to be a stoker on those steamships at that time. When the ship hit the iceberg and then you had uh, some escaping on, on the lifeboats, what status had the crew members and what status had the stokers? Were they at the bottom of the of the list when it came to those who were evacuated? Yes and no, because obviously the crew were at the bottom of the list and the passengers had to go first. But in in one way, stokers had a very slight chance of escape in that the officers ordered some of the stokers who who had managed to get to the decks to actually row some of the lifeboats. So one or two stokers did actually uh, escape that way because they were physically strong or certainly able to sort of have stamina. um, And so they were used as people to row the lifeboats away so certainly a few stokers I researched got away that way but for most of the others who weren't told to do that yeah they they perished um very much so they were either down in the boiler rooms as it happened so they would have been down you know when it when it hit and and flooded and drowned down there or been trapped down there uh, or they just simply wouldn't have been you know entitled in any way shape or form to get into a lifeboat unless they'd been ordered to do so as helping others the subtitle of your brilliant book is The Forgotten Victims of the Fatal Voyage. And in, in one sense, there's there's two different sets of victims that are forgotten. First are the those like your, your great-grandfather, but then also uh, looking at their their family who were left very often in, in poverty because your great-grandmother uh, had five children who she had to raise on her own. And uh, that was incredibly difficult. Yes, yes. And that's, why I wrote the book I did because when I was learning my own family history as a woman who then I became a mother myself I remember thinking well yes it's absolutely terrible that my great-grandfather William and so many died the way they did but what on earth would have happened to the wives and the children because there was no welfare state there was no help for these people so if you lost your only form of breadwinner your husband who worked on these ships 
you had absolutely nothing. Um, and this was, you know, when women had very few rights, it was before women could vote. Um, the suffrage movement was great, gaining great momentum. It was an incredibly volatile time to be a woman. Uh, they were on the verge of changing so much and yet still still not. Uh, and so I remember thinking, well, what happened to the wives and all the children? So I researched many of them, including my own family, but also other wives and, and, and children. And they lived in great poverty uh, back then anyway. There'd been a coal strike in Southampton or in, in Britain at that sort of winter leading up to the Titanic setting sail. So many of their men hadn't worked for a long time, so they didn't have food on the table or any money to pay their rent or whatever. So they were already at a very poor starting point, even before they lost their husband on the Titanic. So after that, they were really, really very destitute. Um, in my great-grandmother's case, she had to take in laundry straight away from other people in her street and in her area just to survive. So she was dealing with this grief of not knowing where her husband was at that point and then ultimately knowing he had died, but then having to worry about her five children and how they would survive for the years ahead. For your book, you did a lot of primary research on similar accounts and you also, I think, interviewed descendants of, of Titanic crew victims and survivors. Were there similar experiences across this range then of, of families being left in poverty? And I wonder, were people interested in them because uh, they had a relative who died on the Titanic? And as the Titanic story became uh, such a global phenomenon, uh, did that have any effect? Yes, yes. I found many um, people. You're right. I, I met lots of people who I sort of scoured or tracked down on the internet um, or, or found names and was able to meet with them. And their, their stories were, were really, really interesting. I mean, some very similar to me, the, the, their ancestor just carried on, you know, managed to survive um, and, and did what they could. Others, whole families were split apart. Um, there was one case where there were sort of four or five children. They all ended up in different places and were separated. Somewhere children ended up in a workhouse um, or were taken off the mother. Um, it was it was really tragic, some of the stories I heard. Um, and yes, you're right, descendants still do... Ha- people who are interested in the Titanic as a tragedy are very interested in descendant stories. I think because because people find the, the, the ship so fascinating for a multitude of reasons, I think to find somebody who is linked to it by blood in some way is always interesting. And finally, do you think it's a, a really important, it's really important for us when we're remembering the Titanic and marking the anniversary that we don't just focus on uh, the glamorous parts, that we don't just focus on the romanticised parts. And we have to also uh, remember that behind all of this tragedy, there are those crew stories, the families they left behind, and that it's not just those in first class and the, and the bigger, more famous names. Yes, definitely. I mean, that was the the whole ethos behind writing my book. It was that whenever I looked for any kind of Titanic um, history or or social history or or anything when I was researching, I generally in the main came across the the big names and what it was like in first class and and all the the things we know from films and depictions that I'm sure we've all seen. Um, Whereas I wanted to know not only what it was like for the crew, but what happened in the aftermath, because I think that's always quite fascinating in any tragedy um, is the aftermath, I think, how people cope, because I think that's how you can sort of measure what what people's characters were like. Um, and, and I was really, really impressed and awestruck by how hard these women had already fought to survive and yet how much they had to fight even harder when they'd lost their breadwinner. So, you know, there were, as I said, my grandmother, the great grandmother took in laundry. Others had their children taken away. Uh, some turned to drink um, and, and lost everything, you know, and, and while now we might have a lot more sympathy for those kinds of stories back then, it was very much a man's world and, well, you know, 
this woman's misbehaving, so let's strike her off the the list of funds because they were given um, some funds from the Titanic Relief Fund. But again, even that was in class order. So it's just, I think what we still don't look at on the whole in the Titanic is that the aftermath and what it was like for the working class people, both the crew and their families and and how that resonated for years to come. Um, I met people whose families had had been devastated by this tragedy and it had a knock-on effect for two more generations because of poverty, because of lack of education, because a person who may have been in an apprenticeship then had to leave it because they, they couldn't afford to go, they didn't have the shoes to go. So that poverty then trickled down into the next generation. So I think what we need to remember is that the Titanic wasn't just that day at that time. It really did have a resounding effect for many years and generations to come, particularly for the poor. Well, my thanks to Julie Cook for joining us tonight to talk about the Titanic and its impact on those who perished and their families. Uh, Her book is called The Titanic and the City of Widows It Left Behind, The Forgotten Victims of the Fatal Voyage. And we'll take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Nicola Pierce and Gareth Russell, rejoining them to discuss uh, life on board and the sinking and the legacy of the Titanic. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History uh, on this Easter Sunday as we remember the great tragedy of the sinking of the Titanic and explore its remarkable legacy. I'm rejoined by our panel, Nicola Pierce, the author of Titanic, True Stories of Her Passengers, Crew and Legacy, and also Gareth Russell, author of The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era. Gareth, can we talk about maybe some other villains in this story, would you consider the captain a villain? There, you know, Nicola mentioned earlier about uh, pressure being put on to to go faster. Was the iceberg such a, a problem if they'd been going slower? And uh, were there mistakes made by the crew? I think that's a great question because after I finished the book. Nicola, I don't know if you had this thing as well, where sometimes you wonder, were you too harsh or too lenient in some way yeah. when you, when you finished, the, finished the book? Uh, I do think I was maybe too lenient on Captain Smith. And I, and I wonder, did I fall into the trap? Patrick, it, happens, it happened at the time. Ismay was alive. Smith was dead. You don't speak ill of the dead. The living take, take the blame. And I think the more I looked into Captain Smith's actions, in the it, particularly in the two days preceding the collision, I was horrified by some of the things that in some of the decisions he made. But going back further, I mean, we're talking like 10, 15, 20 years before he becomes captain of the Titanic, there were comments he had made that seem, I mean, hubristic rather even than, than simply arrogant. You know, this is a man who said that the only thing he would ever slow down for was fog. He wouldn't slow for ice. And it should be said that there were other captains who thought, well, the, the safest tactic is to get through the ice field as quickly as we can. He did say that shipwrecks were sort of a thing that belonged in fiction because modern shipbuilding technology had gone beyond the risk of normal shipwrecks. So I think, you know, he, he has this image. If you, if you look at movies like the James Cameron uh, film or indeed any movie, Smith is sort of this avuncular figure you know he looks vaguely like santa claus with his white beard and he's very kind and he you know goes down with the ship and in fact as much as i did admire his bravery at the end and i absolutely would not take that from him i do think this was the man who made the decisions 
not to slow down in any way. Uh, he did turn the ship a little bit later. He went a little bit further south because of the ice warnings. But he was a man who, by his own words, had an overweening confidence in technology. And so without detracting from the tragedy of his death and the wife and child he left behind, of course, I do think that there were um, terrible mistakes made. And in fact, uh, George Bernard Shaw absolutely tore Smith apart in, 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 the, in, in the way that only George Bernard Shaw uh, can. And, you know, he said that the fault was Smith. And the only reason no one was saying it was because he was dead. And he then got into this very spirited exchange of public letters in the newspapers with um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes series. And Sir Arthur said, you're being you know, so unfeeling and unchivalrous. And Captain Smith is this perfect symbol of the nobility of the British Empire. And you do start to see his death being almost turned into a sort of a secular, patriotic pseudo-propaganda in the weeks after his death. You know, this is quote-unquote, the British sea dog who dies at his post. They, they make it look as if he is a symbol of, quote-unquote, Britannia rules the waves. And so there was no room for criticism of his actions at the time, either from a sentimental perspective or from a sort of patriotic perspective. But at the distance of 110 years, I think we can see serious errors of judgment by Captain Smith, to, to put it mildly. Nicola, there was also some controversy because there was a ship, you know, so somewhat nearby, the Californian, and and perhaps that should have done more to see if, if, if this other ship that they saw was in the distance was okay. Yeah, this was um, came out immediately too, and the Americans here and kind of really jumped on this, but I think because um, a lot of the men that were lost were all these famous, wealthy Americans, uh, but only, I think it was in the 90s, it was decided or it was found that, uh, you know, at the time they didn't have the correct coordinates from where the wreck was, Titanic was. So they thought the SS California was much nearer than she actually was. But still, and although there was this um, controversy over, you know, Titanic fired rockets, but there was um, rockets could signify anything at the time. So the fellas on the SS Californian thought they were having a party. And in the 1990s, it was kind of if they had to decide that, you know, pick a colour, which means that a ship is in trouble, well, then it would have been a completely different story. But then it it does turn out, no, the SS California was much further away and really she would have, might have just arrived at the same time the Carpathia did and it could only have helped to take in the uh, people in the lifeboats. She wouldn't have actually saved anyone. Garrett, do you think part of the, 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 the mystique of the Titanic story is the fact that I think we all kind of imagine that if we had been travelling on it, we would have been there in first class enjoying all of the luxury and the wonderful meals and there's great interest in the menu. Whereas, of course, it probably would have been more likely we'd been in third class and I was looking at the menus there and they were uh, much less uh, appetising with things like gruel and porridge and rice dinners and it didn't seem uh, as as good. But we, I think we're more interested in the 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 glamour of the you know the dresses and the clothes and and that these are the elements that then get romanticized in the films and the programs well absolutely and you know one of the things that i I find people are extremes actually people do um have a very uh, strong emotional attachment sometimes to the idea of the unending luxury of the titanic and even within first class there was a massive range in prices you all had access to the same public rooms, you know, the famous grand staircase and the saloon with those multi-course 
uh, fine dining meal. But if you picked a room on B deck, that was probably the most expensive part of the ship. And those are the photographs that are always shown of the lavish suites and the drawing rooms, the parlors, the walk-in wardrobes, the private bathrooms. But you could also pay for a, a first-class cabin on E-Deck, and it was um, not much to write home about. It was very plain, and you'd pay a lot less money. And so the part of the, the attraction of, of the more extravagant side of the Titanic is obviously that that is, a, is sometimes more interesting or escapist, but also we are influenced by how many movies about the Titanic there have been. And from a cinematographer's perspective, you know, shooting something like the Grand Staircase looks be- you know, looks more uh, appealing than the sort of utilitarian third class or the poor forgotten second class. Uh, it was a very comfortable ship, I have to say, in comparison even to the rest. Its tickets in third class cost about as much as second class on other ships. But I think Apart from the aesthetic appeal of it, the Titanic became a moral lesson really quickly, in which case you sort of had the first class um, splendor becoming both a point of fascination and a warning. I think a lot of people at the time were saying this uh, materialism, this love of luxury is indicative of an ailing society. It's indicative of a shallow society that was focusing on things like you know, having a veranda cafe and a Parisian cafe at sea rather than more lifeboats. That was sort of how the story was was spun. So you had on the one hand, yes, the aesthetic appeal of first class, which is so interesting and we all like to imagine we'd be in one of those four poster beds on B-Deck, but also it becomes used as a moral lesson against the sins of materialism after the ship sinks. The Cameron movie, though, I would say there has never been i'm struggling to think of a movie that had a more historically accurate set i mean they basically rebuilt the interior from the original plans for the titanic at the moment there's a lot of research going into a starkly fascinating movie uh, about the titanic that was made by joseph goebbels the nazi minister for propaganda during the war and he very much is made the villain in it. And he uses the ship as a symbol for the corruption of Britain and America, propaganda piece for the Third Reich. So the Titanic has, has a, a, almost as rich a history in, on screen as it does in reality. Nicola mentioned Dorothy Gibson, the, the survivor who made the movie Saved from, Saved from the Titanic a few weeks after. So we've been looking at the Titanic on screen from within weeks of its thinking. And it has shaped, I think, a lot of what we think of that disaster. It really was um, a huge epiphany for me to realise that so many children were absolutely mad about the Titanic. But I would love to see a film made for younger children about the Titanic. I think a 3D animated film would be fantastic. Well, talking history has always wanted to go into the movie industry. So I hope that there is a producer listening who will get in touch with us and we can make it a a, a co-production with talking history. Gareth, we're almost out of time. The legacy of it, do you think it will continue to uh, inspire people in, over the next 110 years? Do you think they'll, they'll continue to make movies and write books about it? Is it just one of these stories that will just resonate for all time? I think so. I think it'll be a bit like Cleopatra or the Six Wives of Henry VIII. There are just certain stories that ring through uh, the ages. And I, there's something about it. It's, it's a morality tale. It's a great piece of history. And 
there were over 2,000 people on board. So there are 2,000 stories. I actually don't think we're at um, a breaking point with Titanic interest anytime soon. And Nicola, I'll leave the final word to you. The legacy of the Titanic? Oh, like say this soothing Dion song, it'll go on and on and on. You know, there's just the, I just think the stories, and we all love stories, and that's what Titanic is. Hundreds and hundreds of fantastic stories. Um, I, and there's loads of Facebook pages about it, but devoted to the Titanic. Uh, and they are people that are very passionate about the Titanic year round and certainly no more than the 110th anniversary of the sinking. Okay, well, my thanks to all my guests for helping to uh, recreate what happened 110 years ago and talking to us about the story of the Titanic. Nicola Pierce, author of Titanic, True Stories of Her Passengers, Crew and Legacy, and also that novel Spirit of the Titanic. Gareth Russell, author of The Ship of Dreams. And we also heard from Julie Cook, author of The Titanic and the City of Widows, It Left Behind. Well, that does bring us to the end of the show. My very special thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, who had the wonderful idea of marking the anniversary of the Titanic uh, producer show tonight Peter Malloy on sound next week we'll find out about the woman who claimed to have given birth to rabbits and other hoaxes in 18th century England the Chicago police chief who helped save Irish music and the final bloody scramble across Europe in the dying days of World War II so join us next week on News Talk we've been talking history Good night. <laughs>